Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are doing well, and for some of you, wherever you may be living in the world, it's probably already evening time, but nonetheless, it's uh, great to be on the air. And um, from what I've seen so far, um, I'm very pleased uh, to see that many of you um, whom have been with me for some time are more than likely uh, with me once again as we have uh, just begun embarking upon a new uh, podcast uh, book book series uh, topic, being um, Michael Schumacher's uh, Torn in Two, The Sinking of the Daniel J. Morrell, and One Man's Survival on the Open Sea. Um, I can tell you this much where we're going to be going in this uh, next um, episode. Uh, We have obviously a lot of ground to cover, but then again, we obviously um, have lots of ground to cover uh, regardless of uh, topic and uh, episode that we're on, uh, which is never a bad thing. But in this uh, particular episode that we will be um, focusing on, uh, we will, we're going to learn about uh, what takes place around mid-August of 1906. Of course, I know that um, that seems uh, quite a um, leap uh, backwards, but the year of 1906, most notably in August of 1906, is very important as that it does pertain to um, to not only the um, vessel Daniel J. Morrell, but that of her uh, twin sister, the Edward Y. Townsend. I know I probably, I know I probably could be giving some of this information away now, but I'm also giving you all some good leeway as to how we're going to uh, progress forward as we uh, begin this um, next episode. Uh, we will also learn about um, something that. Well, I wouldn't say so much something, but we will also learn about what is becoming revolutionary come the uh, beginning of the 20th century uh, with regards to uh, the overall state of uh, vessels in the United States. Uh, we will also learn about a, a unique uh, natural uh, resource that um, that obviously has been around for a long time and has been used for various uh, purposes, but we will learn how it becomes of uh, significant use even before the uh, 19th century comes to an end. We will also learn about um, a unique uh, company that um, started in uh, Johnstown, uh, Pennsylvania. And we will also learn, um, we will learn for whom uh, the vessels obviously are named after. I mean, obviously there is a reason why uh, the vessels are named uh, Daniel J. Morrell and Edward Y. Townsend. I think it would be fair to say that they are named after uh, individuals, but we uh, will learn more about uh, those two individuals and why um, they both uh, played uh, prominent roles. And we will also um, talk more about um, about late November of uh, 1966 with regards to the uh, movement of both uh, vessels as well. It's not just uh, one vessel uh, going out on the water, but as we recall from our introduction, we learned that the uh, Edward Y. Townsend was going to be uh, having to replace the other uh, ship whose name was never revealed, but there was supposed to be another ship uh, going out on the um, waters uh, for late November, but because she had uh, mechanical issues, the Edward Y. Edward Y. Townsend was asked to take that uh, ship's place. So, I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, both uh, freighter vessels, whom um, whom were say built by the well, whom are related to one another, 
I don't think there's anything wrong with them being out on the waters together at the same time, but sometimes that's not always the uh, designated plan. Sometimes um, one vessel goes out while the other one stays behind, but sometimes history has it where both vessels need to be out there at the same time, even if it's uh, something beyond a company's control. And uh, real quick before we get started, I was uh, very, very uh, deeply saddened uh, to have seen on the news last night about all of the um, about all of the uh, violence uh, taking place over in the Middle East. Um, not trying to sound political or anything, but uh, it was just very, very um, disheartening and um, terrifying to see uh, families being ravaged, not only just by the violence, but how they were being ravaged. Uh, witnessing uh, on television how, um, in one instance, a child was literally taken away from his family. I can't imagine living in a country or any anywhere else in the world where, for one, there might be um, instability, but two, um, on the scale in which this instability uh, took place or the the event itself took place and I uh, and again I'm not trying to be political and all that but um, but one uh, news reporter did describe it as uh, Israel's version of 9/11 uh, given how unexpected the attack was and so I can't imagine um, even being at a concert where I heard that um, many people sadly lost their lives at a concert where Part of the ambush took place, and uh, people innocently losing their lives. So, uh, the bottom line is that you know it, it's always easy to assume that you're safe, and that that nothing can ever um, terribly go wrong. But we have learned uh, throughout the course of history that sadly, events do happen, and they've been known to happen where people's innocence have been um, taken from them to the point where they never get over how their innocence itself was taken away from uh, to start with. So we just have to be reminded that freedoms, that while, yes, we all of us may have some form of freedom, but, but freedoms alone can't always protect us from anything harmful that we would wish never to have be bestowed upon us. But yet when that, when it does happen, it is a huge setback that does take time to recover, and it takes time to uh, reevaluate and realize, okay, yes, we may still have these freedoms, but how are we going to um, how are we going to modify things? How are we going to readjust to where we could still have the freedoms, but how are we going to ensure that uh, they can be better preserved and uh, defended against uh, such uh, barbaric norms like what happened uh, over the weekend and what was. Um, televised per the news yesterday. But anyways, I think it's fair to say that we uh, definitely need to get the show on the road with our uh, next uh, podcast uh, segment episode to um, Michael Schumacher's Torn in Two, The Sinking of the Daniel J. Morrell, and One Man's Survival on the Open Sea. So here's our leadoff question, folks. Uh, what was great about August 1906 for officials at the Cambria Steamship Company? Well, before I give you all the answer, um, there's usually one thing that comes to my mind per the year 1906, and that was um, the uh, San Francisco earthquake of 1906, which happened 
I want to say around April or May of that year. And it was such a, um, a horrific event that, um, that uh, it obviously made um, headlines, not only in the United States, but also around the world. And while, yes, San Francisco was rebuilt, what historians have learned, not to get off track here, folks, but what, but what I learned through a documentary about the San Francisco earthquake was that um, scientists, or I should say seismologists or geologists of the time, had warned uh, city leaders that, look, where you all originally had built the city was not in the best of locations. As a matter of fact, you built it pretty much right along the San Andreas fault line, which is the most notorious fault line in California for um, for uh, large-scale earthquakes. But then again, even small-scale earthquakes um, happen along the San Andreas fault line. But the bottom line is uh, city... Um, Scientists, or I should say uh, seismologists or geologists of the time, had warned city leaders that if you all don't relocate San Francisco to um, a more safer ground, chances are you will have another earthquake like this one. Well, I hate to say the city leaders didn't listen to um, the scientists. They were more concerned about rebuilding and getting back to life as normal. And while all that seems uh, reasonable, many, many uh, decades later, another bad earthquake hit San Francisco. And I remember it very well in 1989, where um, the city once again endured major fires as a result of the earthquake and uh, part of the Bay Bridge collapsed. But what do you know, all these years later, Thanks to uh, better engineering practices and better warnings in place, uh, better GPS systems for underground, uh, San Francisco has not experienced another earthquake like what happened in 1989, but that's not to say that the city isn't uh, fully immune from another disaster. Um, as scientists say, it's not a matter of if or when the next uh, major earthquake could happen, it's just a matter of time. So anyways, uh, back to the uh, primary question about uh, what was so great about August of 1906 for officials at the Cambria Steamship Company. Uh, the answer is the following. Uh, officials witnessed the launching of two bulk freight carriers take place just under a full week span. But most importantly, at the time of both vessels getting built, the economy was strong, including an ever-growing demand for a uh, unique natural resource known as iron ore. What is iron ore? It's a mineral substance when heated in the presence of a reduct of a reductant of a reductant. It uh, produces um, metallic or metallic iron. That's just the basic uh, 101 uh, definition or interpretation of uh, what iron ore is. Now, on August the 18th of 1906 the Great Lakes freighter SS Edward Y. Townsend got officially launched. And during the time of her launching, she was known to be the longest vessel on the, on the lakes at 603 feet. How about we forward for, how about we forward four days later, August 22nd, 1906. Great Lakes freighter SS Daniel J. Morell was officially launched, but was just a foot shorter than the Townsend. 
two vessels, folks, 600, just over 600 feet in length or 600 feet long. These are some pretty um, massive size uh, freighters. Now, eventually over time, freighters will get bigger. But for the start of the 20th century to have two freighters be launched where they're just over 600 feet, to me, that is very, very revolutionary, to say the least. Oh, and by the way, who is president of the United States in 1906? He became president five years earlier uh, when uh, William McKinley was assassinated in uh, Buffalo, New York. He was shot in Buffalo, New York on September the 6th of 1901, and he died eight days later on the 14th. Uh, McKinley's uh, vice president was uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who just so happened to be in the Adirondack Mountains of New York State, well northeast of Buffalo, and um, was summoned by one of his, um, I guess you would call bodyguard or uh, one of his assistants, whom advised him of, um, of what had just taken place. Uh, long story short, Theodore Roosevelt was uh, hiking, a, um, hiking one of the largest, um, or I should say hiking one of the tallest mountains in New York State, known as Mount Marcy, named after uh, Governor William Marcy of New York. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt um, got the message eventually and eventually made his way uh, back down from uh, from the highest part of uh, Marcy. I don't know if he ever made it all the way to the top of Mount Marcy, uh, but he did uh, make his way back down and eventually had to journey all the way west to uh, Buffalo, New York, uh, given that ultimately um, William McKinley did sadly lose his life as given that he was uh, the victim of an assassination. Uh, the man who shot him, uh, being Leon Cholgosh, um, shot William McKinley. But uh, Theodore Roosevelt did become president uh, five years earlier in September of 1901. So yes, he is in, he is halfway through the, um, he is halfway through his uh, full four-year term. He finished out uh, William McKinley's four-year term, but he was uh, elected in 1904. Um, as uh, president to serve out a, a full four-year term. So yes, uh, Theodore Roosevelt is uh, America's uh, president of the United States in 1906. Now at the turn, or I should say at the start of the 20th century, uh, the emergence of the 600-foot freighter vessels uh, established a uh, precedent. They were being established as a um, long-term um, fixture for various purposes. Why is it that America, most notably all along the Great Lakes, are inclined to have 600-foot freighter vessels? Well, for one, these um, big guys can uh, go about hauling greater cargoes. And what I mean by greater uh, cargoes is, folks, they can, they can haul cargoes well over Okay, well, um, 2,000 um, pounds is the equivalent to one ton. So we're talking about wanting to uh, haul greater cargoes that are far more than, say, just 2,000 pounds worth of uh, material. We could be looking at folks, I mean, we could be looking at ha hauling cargoes where the tonnage could possibly be 7,000 tons at most. For, for starters, I mean, that 
doesn't sound it sounds grand and and at some point before the end of this podcast uh, episode i will tell you all um a mathematical equation with regards to uh tons of cargo and what that will be the equivalent to in pounds but for uh starters uh these 600 foot freighter vessels will be able to go about hauling greater cargoes which also means that they need to be built faster and by being built faster this will give them more time uh, to uh, spend on Great Lakes waters from uh, point A to point B. So both the Daniel J. Morrell and the Edward Y. Townsend helped set the foundation for being the proper new uh, model regarding new bulk freighter size length being 600 feet long or just over the 600 foot long threshold. Uh, one year after the United States Civil War ended in 1865, the year 1866, so we got to go 40 years back, saw the discovery of the Masabi Iron Range. Masabi Iron Range. I, I know most of you probably have never even heard of that. I didn't really even know about this uh, Iron Range until I'd read the book. But the Masabi Iron Range um, is a mining district located in northeast Minnesota. Today, this um, particular iron range is the chief iron ore mining district in the United States. Now, uh, when I think of uh, places in northeast Minnesota, I think of such places as uh, Hib is, uh, Hibbing, Evelith, um, Ely, which is a, a big... Um, camping uh, getaway resort where um, you can go fishing along um, Lake Superior. Uh, Duluth is up in uh, northeast Minnesota. It's not uh, too far from some of these towns. Now the presence of iron ore resulted in a greater demand for shipping to steel firms along the Great Lakes as well as expanding the railroad system. So it's one thing to be shipping these natural resources from point A to point B along the water, but if you want to get to them by land, if you want to uh, do any business by land, what what do you have to do? Well, for starters, you've got to unload your cargo, but you've also got to be able to make sure that that cargo can get to a uh, railroad depot where the trains can take the um, the goods by land from from the rail yards to their final destination, because after all coal plants or by land you know the, the vessels aren't going to be able to get to the coal plants but they can get to um, inland uh, facilities of course inland waterways or in some kind of inland facility where they can unload their stuff and this way the final uh, end result can uh, get to can uh, yield and uh, getting to the uh, final destination by land not to make it complicated but it's one thing to have more um, uh, waterway uh, routes along the Great Lakes, but you also need to expand the railroads as well. Whereas old wooden boats and schooners re relied upon the wind and weather for preferable sailing conditions, and yes, we do have to remember, folks, at, time, at one point in time that ships did have to re rely upon the wind uh, for uh, favorable sailing conditions, by the time these new hundred, by the time these new 600-foot-long steam-driven uh, bulk freighters arrive, which is revolutionary, 
but what really makes them unique? Now, I know I probably did mention a few things earlier, but uh, what do you all think um, is going to make the new 600-foot-long steam-driven bulk freighters all the more unique? Well, for starters, they didn't have to rely upon wind direction with regards to hauling cargo from points A to B. But their new overall shapes were radical. And how so? Well, previously, with um, wooden boats and schooners, the pilot house, or what was known as the wheelhouse being, or the wheelhouse was originally located in the vessel's midsection with hatches placed front and back. So, with the um, bulk freighters, these new 600-foot bulk freighters, the pilot house or the wheelhouse was now getting got placed on the uppermost deck of the vessel. So, in other words, it was no longer in the middle. So, new 600-foot freighter vessels now had their middle sections widely enhanced to where multiple hatches being the openings in the ship's spar decks, were all placed in the middle. And the reason that you have these hatches, folks, or I should say openings in the ship's spar decks, the hatches are equipped for loading and unloading purposes, resulting in greater efficiency. So in other words, you have more room in the middle for more hatches. So think about it. Previously, if your pilot house was in the middle, you may have had, at best, maybe six hatches up front and maybe six in the back. But depend, depending upon the size of your schooner or wooden boat, it's probably fair to say that most wooden boats maybe would have been between 200, 300 feet long. I'm just going to give an estimate. But you would not have been able to have had a total of probably 18 hatches. So with these new 600-foot freighter vessels with the midsections widely enhanced to where multiple hatches are, um, are equipped for loading and unloading purposes, it's, it's fair to say that you probably could have um, at minimum a dozen hatches, but it is also fair to say that you could have a dozen and a half, at, a dozen and a half hatches, meaning that you could have up to 18 hatches to store cargo uh, below in the hold. I say that's quite revolutionary, to say the least. How about something else that's revolutionary about these new 600-foot-long um, bulk freighters? All 600-foot freighters going forward had 58-foot beams, beams being the overall width of a ship per the widest point. Each were equipped with uh, triple expansion engines, Engines, I should say, comprised of three cylinders at three different pressures. Coal-burning engines, which could generate up to 1,800 horsepower. Horsepower, folks, being pow um, power that an engine itself produces or the rate at which the work itself is done. 600-foot freighters are now, folks, equipped to carry upward around 11,000 tons of cargo. I should have done the math on this one, so um, forgive me for not having done it, but 11,000 tons of cargo, folks. Is it fair to say that these 600-foot uh, freighters can carry far more um, cargo per tons 
than what the uh, wooden boats and schooners were not able to do previously? Uh, the answer is a definitive yes. All right, now I know I mentioned something earlier about uh, the Cambria Steamship Company, company and, how, um, and how officials at the uh, Cambria Steamship Company were really, really excited, especially with the, those uh, two ships being launched, um, the, the Morel and the Townsend. Where exactly was the Cambria Steamship Company uh, located? How about Cleveland, Ohio? Cambria Iron Company was founded in 1862, uh, one year after the uh, Civil War or the infamous war between the states broke out. Cambria Iron Company was stationed in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, uh, being well east of Pittsburgh, but uh, just west of uh, Harrisburg. Uh, Johnstown, if any of you aren't familiar where Johnstown is, it's, it's in western Pennsylvania. It's on the outskirts of Altoona, not too far from a place known as Punxsutawney. Uh, Punxsutawney, whenever I think of Punxsutawney, I think of uh, uh, the groundhog and whether or not he sees his shadow or if he doesn't see his shadow. And, of course, they do that every February to determine whether or not there will be six more weeks of winter or if spring will arrive uh, sooner than originally uh, projected. So, yes, Cambria Iron Company is founded in 1862, stationed in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. It just so happens to be home to the largest rail, uh, rail mill in the United States. So, if the Cambria Iron Company is home to the largest rail mill in the United States, isn't it fair to say that the company itself has a special interest in shipping ore, or not? I should say in shipping iron, um, to um, facility being that of a, a Cambria Steamship Company. Yes, because in doing so, Cambria Steamship Company would become what's, what's known as a subsidiary or a partner company. So we go to 1898, um, being at the very, very end of the 19th century, being the year which saw the Cambria Iron Company become Cambria Iron Works. And it just so happens that in the year 1898, folks, that's the same year that really, that really the United States has now evolved into a world superpower. The United States has become far more industrialized by 1898 than it was, say, 75 years earlier. If that tells you anything about um, the evolution of uh, industrialization in the United States, even at the start of the 19th century, when uh, the capital had been relocated from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C., we are still a very, very predominantly uh, agrarian society. Yes, there might be uh, one section of, of America at the turn of the 19th century that might be slightly more industrialized than the other, but it's not as heavily industrialized, but it's uh, laying its uh, foundations. Uh, the New England region... Um, would have been more of a mercantile economy that was uh, based upon um, maritime interests, whereas um, whereas uh, the southern part, whereas the uh, southern states of uh, the United States would have been more uh, confined to being an, an agrarian-based economy. That's not to say the New England region did not abandon agrarian interests altogether, but um, but per uh, uh, 
but on the grounds of uh, sectionalism or regionalism, it just uh, just so it happened that the uh, that the New England region or the northern United States was more of a mercantile uh, society versus the South being more agrarian. That's just how it was uh, defined. How about this true or false question here? Let's get ready to find out what this one's about. Uh, despite the Morell or the SS Daniel J. Morell and SS Edward Y. Townsend being dubbed as sister ships, were they constructed by different shipbuilders? I know most of you would probably find that odd for me to be asking, but I'm sure some of you could get stumped on it. Believe it or not, folks, the answer is true that both uh, both of these ships were constructed by different shipbuilders. On the other hand, it would be easy to assume that the answer would be false, but it just so happens to be true that they were constructed by different shipbuilders. Uh, the Daniel J. Morrell was built by West Bay Shipbuilding Company in West Bay, Michigan. Uh, it just so happens that um, West Bay, Michigan is no longer around anymore. It was... Um, it was a, a incorporated into um, a place that still exists today known as Bay City, Michigan, which is uh, north of Flint. As for the Edward Y. Townsend, um, she was built by Superior Shipbuilding in Superior, Wisconsin. And for those of you who'd like to know where Superior, Wisconsin is located, that is located in uh, northwest Wisconsin, way, way up in northwest Wisconsin, right along the Wisconsin-Minnesota line, and it's not far from a place in Minnesota called Duluth. So whenever you think of Duluth, Minnesota being up in northeast Minnesota, think of the next major city over in Wisconsin being that of Superior. Both ships are named for executives whom worked for the Cambria Iron Works Company. Daniel J. Morell and Edward Y. Townsend folks were each born during James Monroe's presidency. James Monroe, James Monroe was president of the United States, being the fifth president from 1817 to 1825, and his presidency uh, was known as the uh, era of good feelings. For Daniel J. Morrell, he was born in uh, 1821, and for Edward Y. Townsend, he was born in 1824. For Daniel J. Morrell, he was originally um, he originally hailed from uh, Maine. And what I find unique about this is that Maine was admitted uh, into the Union in 1820, the year before. And, of course, I've said it before from other podcast uh, book topic series, but I'll mention it again as a impo very important reminder that we do forget that Maine was once part of Massachusetts. So um, when uh, Maine became its own state, uh, Massachusetts did lose a lot of its population and that was because many of Massachusetts people were living in what was then the Maine Territory, but it was still considered to be part of Massachusetts. But there was a split, and um, Maine became its own um, free independent state in 1820 as part of the uh, Missouri Compromise. But yes, we do need to be reminded that um, that a state like Maine was not uh, its own um, entity. It was actually part of Massachusetts at one time for many years. 
So yes, uh, Daniel J. Morrell originally uh, hailed from Maine, and he moved to uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at age 15, which would have been somewhere probably around 1836-1837. But in the year of 1855, he went about moving westward to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, where he took on the title of general superintendent and manager to Cambria Iron Company. His resume is very impressive, to say the least. He went about serving as a bank president to being president of Johnstown Gas and Water Company. He served as chairman of the Johnstown City Council, including serving two terms as a U.S. Uh, House of Representatives in Congress. I think it's fair to say that uh, Mr. Morell has not missed out on anything. Prior to uh, working for the Cambria Iron Company, Edward Y. Townsend had been employed with Wood, Abbott, and Company, being a Philadelphia-based dry goods firm. In the year of 1873, eight years after the uh, Civil War ended, Mr. Townsend became president of Cambria Iron Company, a post that he held for just shy of 20 years. Whom did uh, Cambria Iron Company assign the Morell and Townsend to for sailing purposes? I'm sure some of you are wondering, why does this matter? Well, there is a reason why, and I can tell you that reason. They, For starters, they both went about sailing for M.A. Hanna Company, a veteran vessel management firm on, great, on the Great Lakes. So, hey, it, it, there's nothing wrong, for starters, to be... Um, sailing with a company that is a veteran of um, of, of uh, Great Lakes waters. In other words, they've been around long enough where they've sent out multiple uh, vessels along the waters of the Great Lakes and have obviously um, yielded um, superb results. However, um, the M.A. Hanna Company, um, did its origins... Um, were first rooted in the 1840s under a fellow named Daniel F. Rhodes, whom started Rhodes and Company, which mined coal around the Mahoning Valley located in northeast Ohio, not far from Cleveland, but most notably in Youngstown and Warren. So how does uh, the name M.A. Hanna come into play? Well, the, the gentleman's name is Mark Hanna, he would go about becoming a very well-to-do business and political figure, and I will have, and I will definitely mention more about him somewhere later on down the road. But what I do know is that Mark Hanna married into the Rhodes family, so he did. He just didn't come out of nowhere and and say, "I'm going to buy you all out, and I'm going to have my name now as the company." He married into this, and he married into the family as well as into the business. So he oversaw um, business, business expansion for iron ore um, mining around, most notably, Lake Superior right after the Civil War ended. I think it's fair to say that, you know, even after the Civil War ended, there were those, um, most notably up north, whom still found ways to um, uh, find prosperity and did so by going uh, westward. Uh, most notably into the uh, Western Great Lakes, uh, most notably Superior, for, um, for uh, iron ore purposes. 
Now, prior to uh, 1966, what was the Daniel J. Morell's overall record of service along the Great Lakes? Well, for starters, her service on the Great Lakes comprised of six decades. Okay, folks, 1906 is when she was officially first launched, and she is still on the waters by 1966, folks. That's 60 years. I'm beginning to wonder if this ship has not even gotten close to using all of its nine lives. I think that's a fair assumption. However, a majority of those years, folks, were viewed as uh, being productive, which is what you would hope for if, if you if you want a ship to last around last a long time, most notably a six hundred foot freighter vessel. You want you want her to be around perhaps at minimum of twenty five years, but you want her to be around well past twenty five years, even if it's going to mean enduring some wear and tear. But as long as that wear and tear doesn't um, result in anything um, catastrophic. But of course, there's no guarantee of that either, too. But yes, a majority of those years were viewed as productive, given the Morel uh, transported uh, large loads while at the same time managed to achieve uh, weight records for total cargo amounts placed into all 18 hatches. Okay, folks, so Daniel J. Morel has 18 hatches. So she is definitely an example. She and the uh, Edward Y. Townsend, her sister ship, have um, have sent the have set the benchmark not only for what future freighter for what future uh, bulk freighter vessels are supposed to appear in terms of their size, but how many hatches they are supposed to have in their midsection. More hatches means more cargo, and also more cargo that can be loaded and unloaded no matter where you go from point A to point B on Great Lakes waters. However, there is um, a bit of uh, disturbing news that the Daniel J. Morell did endure about three years after her, um, after her launching. I think it's fair to say that no ship, regardless of, regardless of how old she is, will ever be immune from something um, that can occur no matter how young or how old she is, even if she's still in the peak of her prime. Let's go to August 13, 1909. The Daniel J. Morrell collided with steamer S.S. Henry Phipps, whom just so happened to be a 601-foot-long freighter, whom, like the Morrell, also hauled iron ore. The incident was brought on by heavy fog, I don't understand for the life of me why are vessels out on the fog. I mean, yes, you know, a little fog may not hurt, but if you've got heavy fog, my gosh, you know, who's to say that it, if you're not careful, you're going to run into someone, and it's not going to be a pretty scene. Well, it just so happened here that um, that the Daniel J. Morrell did collide with SS um, steamer Henry Phipps, whom, yes, like the Morel, hauled iron ore, the incident, yes, being brought on by heavy fog along Whitefish Bay. Whitefish Bay, folks, is located along the eastern end of Lake Superior, between Michigan and Ontario, Canada, and both ships were severely damaged. Although the good news is that they were both able to return to service, but would you all like to know the cost repairs? 
they were a lot for their time. I can only imagine what the cost repairs would be in today's time. It would be far more than what it was in 1909 to repair these ships. The cost repairs for the Henry Phipps, folks, was just $5,000. Whereas the cost doubled for SS Daniel J. Morrell at $10,000. Come 1923, 14 years after the incident happened, Bethlehem Steel bought out um, Cambria, and by 1930, one year after the stock market crash of 1929, the Daniel J. Morrell was under Bethlehem Steel's management jurisdiction. Before the 1966 shipping season began, what was determined by Coast Guard inspectors regarding USS Daniel J. Morrell's overall condition? Well, for one, the U.S. Coast Guard inspectors began to see firsthand that the Morrell was showing her age. Well, if a ship is 60 years old and is still on the waters, she is going to show her age. I mean, she is going to be able to show some kind of wear or tear. It may not be the grandest wear of wear and tear um, markings, but you know that if a ship has been out at, along the waters for 60 years, it might be a matter of time before the ship itself may no longer be um, uh, seaworthy, meaning that she can no longer um, navigate the waters. And it might just have to come to it where if her time is up, she'll just have to be scrapped. In other words, uh, all of her um, metal or steel can be used... Um, for other various purposes. In other words, she won't just sit out there and rot. But as we all know in life, nothing lasts forever. Uh, appliances don't last forever. Appliances have a mind of their own. Even um, automobiles have a mind of their own. Ships have a mind of their own. So <laughs> nothing's ever certain. So at the same time, though, that the Morel was showing her age, she was still viewed as being seaworthy. Double-edged sword, to say the least. But here's the big kicker that I found to be probably the most uh, powerful of kickers. Prior to the year 1948, steel that had been previously used for shipbuilding had been proven to be uh, more prone to getting weakened and brittle under... Um, adverse um, weather conditions, most notably when the weather turned cold and when the weather was stormy. The hull being the ship's uh, main component where the decks and the cabins above get built, a ship's hull, regardless of whether it's the Daniel J. Morrell's or any other ship's hull for that matter, hulls need flexibility. Without flexibility, especially in um, such weather conditions as being uh, cold to stormy, a ship's hull would break in two under adverse conditions. Nobody aboard the Daniel J. Morrell is about to understand what will eventually unravel on this last-minute voyage of late November 1966. In other words, 
nobody really is aware that the steel condition of the Morel herself is very weak. They know that she's withered other storms. They know that she's withered, that she's uh, passed um, tests under other unforeseeable or under other adverse uh, weather circumstances. It's one thing for um, a ship to show her wear and tear, but even a hole of all things, folks, the main component of a ship's structure, even a hole itself is not vulnerable. It's just not. Had weather conditions worsened after the Morel departed from Lackawanna, New York? Yes, most notably while she sailed west across Lake Erie and then northward along the Detroit River, resulting in wind speeds that either just got around the threshold of 70 miles per hour or were just under, but yet... Um, could have been just greater than, say, 70 miles an hour. If you've got winds that are running between 50 to 70 miles per hour, to me, those are, uh, they, may not, they may not seem like um, what we would think of as hurricane winds, like in the tropics, but if you've got 70 mile an hour winds, that should tell you right away that a storm is brewing, that a storm is imminent, that you, that the warning, that, that you would be going from advisory to warning status. How about waves that came over the vessel, which they did, that caused further stress to a hole? Not just to the hole itself, but this hole, folks, it's, it's a riveted hole. In other words, um, rivets, folks, like you know, nuts and bolts that get, um, that get um, drilled into the hole for, um, for support purposes. Even rivets themselves, you know, when I think of rivets, I think of rivets that are placed on like the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, rivets are placed on ships even in today's time. I mean, <laughs> there were rivets, folks, placed on that were placed into the Titanic, uh, probably about 10,000 of them at most. But even rivets themselves, no matter how well secure they are placed into a ship's hull, even rivets can endure stress. And especially with waves that are coming at, say, between 10 to 20 foot waves coming over a vessel, and you've got a hole that's already weakened and you don't know it, you don't know the severity of it, it's a matter of time before the hole itself could just totally give out. And then all of a sudden you could be faced with a, with a situation that, that is a matter of life and death. Anything is possible. Um, who is... We mentioned his name in the uh, prologue very briefly, but um, remember Captain Arthur Crawley? He is the uh, captain of the uh, SS Daniel J. Morrell. I found some interesting things about the guy. Well, for starters, he's, he's a native of Cleveland, Ohio. He's 47 years old. Uh, he's a bachelor, but he's only been with the Morrell for just three months. He took over for the uh, previous captain of the vessel, um, whom retired uh, midway in the shipping season. For Captain Arthur Crawley, obviously he had his master's papers being captain certificates, but the irony to, his, to it is that for quite some time he had not used them at all. But he did, uh, but he did spend a lot of time working on bulk freighters since the time he graduated from high school. So, 
so he's not an outsider to this industry, but I'm sure some of you are probably wondering what was he what was he holding out for all this time? Who knows? Uh, but the bottom line is he is uh, he is the captain of this uh, vessel, but he's never been in a position before where he's dealt with adverse weather as a captain. To me, this is going to be a true test of survival, to say the least. In the midst of adverse conditions, I will give him credit for going about dropping anchor below Detroit, along with notifying of the Beth of Bethlehem Steel Dispatcher in Cleveland. So in other words, it's one thing to drop anchor, but you still have to notify uh, the proper authorities, because if you don't, then they're going to be left wondering, hey, why didn't this uh, freighter get to this particular uh, destination spot? What's going on here? So in other words, if you're going to drop anchor somewhere, fine, but you've still got to notify people above you. So where is the SS Edward Y. Townsend? Well, you know, she was, she has, she got uh, designated as part of this uh, mission at the last minute. She departed from uh, Lackawanna, New York, the same evening of November 26th, 1966, just four hours after the Morell had done so at, um, at around 10 minutes after 11 p.m. Well, I take it back. Uh, at 10 minutes after 11 on November 26th of 1966, Captain Thomas J. Connolly of the Edward Y. Townsend spotted and radioed Captain Crawley to report to him that his vessel had taken a beating in the storm, but he planned on uh, continuing uh, going northward and eventually anchoring near Stag Island, which is uh, located in the upper uh, St. Clair uh, River. Now we move forward to uh, the next um, day, being the morning of um, November 27th, 1966, at around 11 a.m. This is around the time that uh, Dennis Hale and John Grow arrived at uh, Windsor, Ontario dock. But there is a problem. The Daniel the SS Daniel J. Morell is not present. Now, I know uh, Captain Crawley told uh, both of these men to meet him at around 11 a.m. Now, I'm sure that uh, Dennis Hale and John Grow are aware of uh, adverse weather conditions, but we've also got to keep in mind, folks, that uh, we don't have cell phones just yet at this time, so it's not like um, Captain Crawley could uh, write down their... Um, down, um, cell numbers for these two crewmen and say, okay, if anything unexpected happens, I will call you all to let you know of, of uh, anything unforeseeable. So for um, Dennis Hale and John Grow, I can tell you this much, they're not going to sit around and twirl their thumbs and do nothing, although they are going to stay put. And that is a promise that Dennis Hale and his colleague did make to um, Captain um, Crawley, uh, most notably given that uh, Dennis Hale did have uh, did experience frequent tardiness on other occasions, and of course, if he uh, missed out on this one um, excursion, as we mentioned in the prologue, he was going to be he was going to have to forfeit um, bonus. He was going to have to forfeit uh, vacation pay as well as extended vacation pay, which could ultimately result in uh, losing out on six to seven thousand dollars on. Um, on an assortment of uh, things that were just mentioned. 
The problem now, folks, is that this vessel, the SS Daniel J. Morrell, is not going to be in sight for the next 16 hours. Captain Crawley kept his ship in, in anchor position for 13 hours due to high winds in the Detroit area. For Dennis Hale and John Grow, they stayed in place along the docks, which included getting a meal from another boat, as well as getting needed sleep for what lied ahead. So this other boat nearby was kind enough, its uh, captain was kind enough to provide these two with a meal and allow them to um, get some uh, needed rest. Sometime around or just after uh, 3 a.m., I did the math, folks, 11 a.m. and 16 hours afterwards, you get 3 a.m. So sometime around or just after 3 a.m. on November 28th of 1966, SS Daniel J. Morrell entered into port and departed Windsor, Ontario, believe it or not, folks, with 221 tons of coal. Okay, here's where I did the math to provide an example of uh, tons to pounds. Okay, we all know that, um, that uh, 2,000 pounds is the equivalent to one ton. But how about 221 tons worth of coal in terms of pounds? The... Um, Estimates come out to, folks, 442,000 pounds worth of coal. That's in pounds. That is a heck of a lot of coal that's going to be shipped, knowing that you've got 18 hatches where you can put all of the stuff in. The wind on Lake Huron at the time of the Morell's departure from a coal docks uh, stood between 6 to 18 miles per hour. The Weather Bureau in Chicago has issued gale alerts for the northern third of Lake Huron as well as treacherous sailing conditions for the remainder of the lake. I'm going to talk more about this in the next uh, podcast uh, segment episode, but I'll tell you a little bit here. What is a gale? I'm sure most of you do know what a gale is, but I'm sure there are some of you who don't. But I'll, I'll give you uh, two good examples of what a gale is. Uh, the 101 def definition of a gale pertains to wind of any strength, including a breeze, whereas the United States National Weather Service interprets a gale as upheld surface winds moving at speeds of up to 39 to 54 miles per hour, or what are known as gale warnings, and that will be mentioned in the next episode. Eight years earlier in 1958, which just so happened to be uh, the same year that another uh, terrible shipwreck along the Great Lakes occurred, um, being that of the uh, SS Carl Bradley. And I know that for most of you who were with me uh, two years ago, around this time, I think is when I began uh, doing that, when I started that series on the Bradley. Uh, that was a, uh, that at the time in 1958, that was uh, considered to be the worst um, the worst uh, Great Lakes, uh, the worst disaster on Great Lakes waters. But anyways, eight years earlier, 1958, the Morell got attacked by a brutal November storm where she endured 100 mile per hour winds as well as navigating through 25 foot seas. Now that is a story to tell, folks. That is a story um, that you could pass down. That is a story that on one hand, yes, it's worth sharing, but is it something that you would ever want to repeat again? Well, we don't have control over Mother Nature, but there again, people from the outside would be asking, why are, those, why are there people out there willing to risk their lives all to make some extra money 
just so that they have enough to provide for their families going into uh, the winter season. That's a question that uh, never went away. Uh, Captain Arthur Crawley did have options if the storm proved too much on Lake Huron. Uh, such options ranged from finding shelter, um, equaling uh, dropping anchor to waiting it out, or continue onward with the hope that bad weather called for would move over, or I should say move outward, come the following, next, following day. However, uh, for the SS Daniel J. Morrell, she would be going directly into the storm versus heavy seas. In other words, by going directly into the storm, she's going to be taking the brunt of everything that's going to be coming in front of her. If she was um, going to be taking uh, on heavy seas, that is uh, waves hitting the vessel from behind, there would be, uh, she would be bearing the brunt from behind, but going forward, she would be okay. However, there is one more option that uh, Captain Arthur Crawley does have at his, um, at his means. And, th and it's this one. He does have the means of keeping his vessel close to Michigan's eastern shore, which could result in protecting her from waves building up via winds out of the west. So it is good to know that, yes, Captain Arthur Crawley does have some options, but at the same time, nothing is ever certain. He may have an option or two right now at this moment, but who's to say come tomorrow morning or come during the middle of the night that those options will still remain viable? Well, that covers it for this uh, episode, uh, podcast segment episode of uh, Torn in Two, The Sinking of the Daniel J. Morrell and One Man's Survival on the Open Sea. Uh, when I'm on the air again next, we're going to talk more about the Witch of November, basically how a storm could brew on the Great Lakes at almost any time. Uh, we will also talk about um, the challenges that both, uh, that both of the captains of the Daniel J. Morrell and Edward Y. Townsend would face. And we will also talk a little bit about um, weather reporting and how uh, weather reporting evolved during the early uh, 20th century. We will also uh, talk a little bit about some uh, past storms and the ramifications that uh, followed. Uh, thank you for your time, as always, and I look forward to being back on the air with all of you. And uh, wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe. Take care for now.